0: What does the future hold for the Basel Framework? Welcome to Global Risk Regulators podcast series about banking and financial regulation. For more information about GRR, please visit www.globalriskregulator.com. In this episode, we are looking at how the Basel Framework might be impacted by the economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. The 2007 to 2009 global financial crisis led to significant revisions to the Basel framework. This had placed banks in a much better position to cope with the current global economic downturn. Nonetheless, the economic downturn this time has been deep and the number of bad loans is expected to pile up And it is happening against a backdrop of global political tensions and changing economic priorities this raises a question of the future of global frameworks such as the basel one the threat of non-compliance and fragmentation the growth of shadow banks and the rise of sustainable finance to address these points i am delighted to welcome bill cohen former secretary general of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision and chair of the IFRS Advisory Council. He also sits on the board of directors of the Toronto Centre, a global non-profit organisation that provides leadership training in financial supervision. And I'm also delighted to welcome Paul Sharma, a managing director at Alvarez and Marsal, who used to be a deputy head at the Prudential Regulation Authority and a former member of the Basel Committee. So the COVID-19 pandemic has had an enormous impact on the global economy, more so than the already very damaging 2007-2009 global financial crisis. How do you think the aftershocks from that might play out in terms of affecting the Basel framework? Well,
1: I think um, I think first, it's important to recognize that in times of crisis, uh, this is true of the global financial crisis. It's certainly true today. Yeah. And authorities, first and foremost, focus on market and financial stability. Everything else is somewhat of a, a second-order question, a, a secondary consideration. And um, as examples, I I think of the the liquidity lines, injection of market liquidity, dollar swap lines, emergency assistance and the like. So when it comes to the global rules, uh, what we have seen so far, I think is encouraging. We've seen flexibility, not forbearance, but flexibility of some of the rules. Um, And as as an example, I think of the uh, the announcements made by the Basel Committee and its governing body, the governors and heads of supervision. Uh, they've deferred implementation of some of the um, Basel III standards for one year. They've extended the related uh, transitional arrangement. So I think that was, um, I think that was was well done. And I, I think the quick and decisive actions of a lot of the national authorities—the Fed, the Bank of England, the ECB—I think they should be applauded. Um, okay. As long as the actions are temporary and and are reversed in due course as uh, as as planned. Of course, when conditions warrant. So I have absolutely no problem, and I could see uh, the justification for temporary delays in implementing impl- implementing the regulatory revisions. Completely understandable. But stepping away from or diluting the previously agreed m- minimum global standards like Basel III on a permanent basis—that um, clearly, I clearly, my view is counter to the best interests of global financial stability.
0: Right.
1: right. So. To, to, well, Justin, to uh, the bottom line, I I think what has been done so far has been um, fully warranted. Uh, I think the real test will come in hopefully a year's time when a lot of these temporary measures uh, are set to roll off. So let's see what happens then.
0: No, indeed, indeed. And and Paul, what's what's your what's your view on on this?
2: Yes, I um, think the economy might change quite profoundly the real economy might change quite profoundly true um, yes. or, um both as a result of the temporary and even more so of the permanent consequences of the uh, of COVID 19. uh if that is the case i'm not sure i start with the view that the 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 the, the perfectly rational policy choices as to the degree of safety we would want from our banks that those those policy choices um will necessarily hold Uh, there is a there is a trade-off between uh safety uh, and growth yeah Uh, it's a difficult trade-off and in the long run uh, uh safety promotes growth in the short run the two can be Moving in in opposite directions from from one another. Yeah. So, so I I suspect there might be a need for a much more fundamental reappraisal of Basel standards. Um, oh really? Okay. Yeah. I I, I mean, but, but as I say, it's not it's not, it's not really. I disagree with with Bill on anything technical to do with banks. It's more yeah. my view as to what I think is going to happen in the real economy.
0: Okay. Okay, well, well, maybe this 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 takes us very neatly to to toss sort up of second question. Let's let, let's let's imagine the economic impact actually turns out to be really quite bad. Um, we see a lot of bad debts piling up at the banks, um, uh, and you know when all the sort of uh, uh, payment holidays are over and all that sort of thing. Uh, could we see further revisions to the Basel framework, maybe? Let, let me go first,
1: oh, if I may, yeah, of course. Justin. Uh, and this is, and this is a, I think it's a nice segue uh, to uh, f- from the, the point that Paul raised. Um, so to answer your question, could we see further revisions to the, the Basel framework? I, I my answer is emph- an emphatic no. Okay. And why is that? Uh, it's, I, and I do think we're going to see a quite pronounced um, period of stress. Uh, how could we not? With yeah. with the um, NPLs that will are surely coming our way in the US, uh, the EU, the UK, other jurisdictions. There's, there's not a doubt in my mind. But then um, be very specific. What, um, what, what revisions could we, uh, could we think about? Um, because we, what the Basel committee develops uh, minimum requirements, and, and I stress minimum requirements. Uh, okay, I, I mentioned before the deferral or the delay in implementing the standards, but we're talking about specific revisions to minimum requirements. And, and the minimum requirements—it's not like a uh, like a trade agreement, um, or a, you know, um, some some kind of an arms treaty. We're talking about the bare minimum below which uh, operating below which would be unsafe and unsound. I mean, let's use the leverage ratio example of three percent. Yeah. Um, goodness, uh, we we saw what happened in the global financial crisis, operating uh, at at um, with high leverage. Uh, I, I can't think of any of the measures um, that would really warrant a um, um, a, a rethink. Now, uh, and I'm I'm assuming that Paul, you you might have been um, thinking about a, a rethink of the standards, but probably on the lower side. I. I, I don't hear too often, except for some academics. I don't hear too often from people say, people saying that the Basel minimum standards are are are, um, um, are too um, are too too low. I, I I do hear some from some academics who say, yeah, no, we, we missed the mark. We we should have been far more ambitious. So, um, Justin, I, my my response to your question is no. I, I really don't think there's there's room to further revise the minimum the uh, minimum requirements that the Basel Committee has produced.
0: Okay, so to kind of just just you know uh, people are free to uh, use that 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 not very ho- that bit horrible word gold plate them if they wish to. If they could make their banking system safer, which is um, what what a lot of jurisdictions do anyway, such as Switzerland, the UK. Um, so so Paul, what's your what's your take on this then?
2: So so I I, I fear that if the economy changes profoundly. Th- there will. There may need to be some aspects of the of the Basel standard that that change okay. quite profoundly. Let me pick just one. Yep. Um, the IRB approach. One uses past data to calibrate one's PDs and one and indeed one's LGDs. Yep. Um, past data. There is a, there is a presumption that the past is representative of the future and of course we all understand that it's a lot more complicated than that you filter the past for things that you know for things that are not going to repeat and you add in things that perhaps haven't happened and are going to happen in the future but that's that's basically it where you have a fundamental shift in the economy um the past becomes less valuable for the future so let let me take the analogous problem of How do you credit underwrite? How do you price credit risk at the moment? Um, Anybody pricing credit risk for a loan at the moment needs to think about whatever the history of the sector that they're they're, they're financing, they need to think about um, a a structural, not a cyclical, but a structural change in demand that may be occurring for that sector. And they need to think about, is. Is that sector closed temporarily with a strong rebound or is that sector closed and it will never go back to the way that it is? And for the former, I would say hairdressing is a good example of a sector that's closed temporarily, but will rebound. Yeah, if, so there's a lot up demand there. It, <laughs> and, if, and, if, and if this were a sort of a video rather than an audio, you'd, you'd see why I'm making that point. Um, uh, but for the retail sector, I suspect, there will be no rebound. There will be a rebound, but then no to nowhere near the, the, the current level. So the the past has ceased to be anywhere near as informative about the future as it was hitherto.
0: No, that, that, that that's a really will,
2: interesting point. Yeah, that will need to be reflected in the implementation of the Basel framework.
0: Right. Okay. Um, well, okay. But, Go but on if, Bill,
1: um, let me let me just quickly ask for for clarification paul so are you talking about just the you know the operational aspect of basel 3 how pds and lgds are estimated or or are you talking about something more fundamental because i was talking about something more fun, fundamental like calibration yeah. um i'm very uh, I'm, I'm acutely sensitive to the whole complexity issue and that's something we grappled with well, oh. since the development of basel 2. but if you so if you're talking about something process related and, and how to estimate the, uh, the risk parameters oh, that's fine, you know, we, we could continue to think about that because we've thought about it for, for many, many years. But if you're talking about something more fundamental like calibration, well, I, I think that's that that's what I was talking about. And I was thinking there really isn't any any further room to, to revise downward um, what are already in the view of many very low minimum requirements.
2: Yeah, so I'm sort of making the bridge between the two because I suspect the disruption to the information to to the disruption for the future compared to the past will be such that we will not know what degree of confidence we have calibrated the Basel Accords to. Whether we keep the standards the same, whether we lower them, or whether we increase them, actually, our ability to know what loss absorbency they have um, uh, will be degraded, Yeah, Put, put simply. How do you you yeah? How do you how do you know that you've got the right PDs? Well, the to, you know the you know we had a fairly good answer to that based on past data. We were, we understood that there were some problems with the the answer in particular. We saw that in terms of comparability from one bank's PDs to another, but we had a fairly good answer to that we were making progress on that. If the future is going to be significantly different from the past, we no longer have a good handle on that. We're no longer tuning to say, let's have, you know, let's have safer or less safe banks, because we don't know to what extent, you know, even keeping the standards constant, that the new circumstances have made the banks less safe.
0: Kind of need to start again with with some of the data series, I guess, for for particular yes. industries, yeah, yes. and, and kind of re re rate their riskiness, I suppose.
2: Yes, and if you're pricing, so let's talk about pricing rather than capital and regulation. If you're pricing, that's a that's exactly what you're going to have to do. Yeah, yeah. So if you do, are going to have to have that kind of a rethink for pricing? Yeah, that that must have a knock on effect. For, for the amount of capital.
0: Okay, uh, Bill. Before we move on to the next question, do you have any final points you want to make on this? No, I
1: I, I know Paul's saying, and I, I do agree on the pricing issue. And I, I you know that leads to my my major premise when we talk about capital. Capital is important, of course it is. I, I devoted a significant part of my career to trying to get it right. Sure. But first and foremost, there are governance questions. There are, um, the, the role of risk management, um, pricing, capital allocation with a, within a firm, um, you know, there, there are some, some things that are even f- more fundamental than, uh, than uh, regulatory capital. So I, I, I take that point. I think that's uh, very important.
0: Okay, fine. Okay, um, actually, Bill, I'll start with you. Since you used to be Secretary General of the Basel Committee, you must have had a particularly good insight on on this next question. Um, you know, the world is becoming much more fragmented politically. We've got really quite high tensions between the West and China now. The US and EU aren't getting on particularly great, and there's India and China as well. Is there a risk that those geopolitical tensions could seep in to the basel committee's work um and and you know maybe even eventually erode confidence in the basel framework
1: you know Justice, this this is not a new question this has been around um even before the uh the last uh global financial crisis now i will i will uh, say every representative on the basel committee not surprisingly has um their own views and those views have been informed by their personal national experience. So I I don't, but I really don't think geopolitical considerations are a big factor. Okay. Um, I've already mentioned one reason, minimum prudential requirements. We're not negotiating trade agreements, arms treaties. We're talking about um, among central bankers and supervisory authorities, we're talking about trying to come to agreement on what constitutes a minimum prudential requirement. So that's, that's sort of a common thread among um, Basel Committee members and and those who participate in the process. Um, But I I also think the post-global financial crisis experience is really instructive here. There was, you know, you think back, and it wasn't that long ago, there was significant concern about supervisory or regulatory fragmentation. Uh, It turned out really not to be too much of an issue for the Basel Committee. Uh, and, And those were concerns that were, really amplified when there was a change in the U.S. administration um, that became effective in early 2017 when President Trump took office. Um, th- at that time, we were trying to finalize one of the biggest pieces of all the reforms, and that was the aggregate output floor. And people just threw their hands up in the air, and they said, oh, it's never going to happen now. But
0: Yeah, I look, remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: look what happened. Yeah, um, that that's various, a good point. Very substantive, substantive pieces of the Basel III jigsaw were finally finalized uh, finalize subsequently. Um, in addition to the floor, all the other uh, Basel III revisions on credit risk, operational risk, um, we had the fundamental review of the trading book that was um, that was finalized January 2019. So all of this uh, occurred after um, after appeared uh, or a development a new u s administration uh where people thought well this is never you know
2: this yeah. is never going to happen now.
1: The other thing, let me just add um if you think about the Basel committee membership, yeah, it includes china the u s but it includes twenty five other countries um and a, about a half really about one half of the uh, Basel committee is comprised of emerging market economies argentina brazil china Hong kong
0: sure yeah
1: out I mean there's it's really it's it's roughly half we uh, engage closely with the IMF who participates in Basel committee meetings we have observers like Chile Malaysia uh, the uh, United Arab Emirates that participate as observers and we engage really uh, with with other countries through a process called the Basel consultative group that has 20 21 other countries and a dozen other organizations so it really is a global Group and they're, they're, you know it, there really is a global perspective when we look at these things. So I'm, no, I'm not concerned about. Um,
0: okay, about no, you, you, things, you make a point point on that very well. Uh, uh, I mean, Paul, you have sat through many a, a a Basel Basel meetings and negotiations. Um, you know, seeing how other countries behave and or representatives behave and so on. W- and what's your take on that? Do Do you think you know will manage to keep geopolitics? Out of um, out of Basel, out of the Basel Committee.
2: I I think there is less commitment to agree for the sake of the global good. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, as compared now as compared to five years ago, uh, as compared to ten years ago. Having said that, I don't actually see it. As being in particularly in anybody's interest to destroy the standards that are there right yeah uh, and it may well be in everybody's interest to agree some new standards but if we were to get into a situation where um you know, where, where where national interests were potentially at variance with the global good I'm not sure the, the 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 sort of the the, the margin of um, yeah, the margin of deference, which was never per, never perfect, but the margin of deference that individual countries will play will will be prepared to pay to promote something that's to the global good. I'm not sure that's in the same place now as it was previously. Right. What I'd uh, I, I'd say on that. Now, where might that come up? If, for example, we have, um, you know, a, a, a sort of environmental considerations starting to influence uh, capital requirements or if some countries want to promote a growth agenda
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, uh, as opposed to a safety agenda, you know, a, a in each case, those cases for national interests reasons or, yeah, you know, or for perceptions of global interest. I'm not sure that that the coherence will be maintained. And I think part of the way that Basel, part of the path to maintain coherence is to stay narrowly focused on the important issue of bank safety, rather than trying to achieve other purposes with what Basel is doing.
1: Right, Okay. Paul, let me me just uh, jump in for a quick second because earlier you said that uh, a growth agenda and a safety agenda, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, particularly in the long run. So I I don't agree with the premise that you have to choose one or the other because in the long run, and I think we've we've gotten some good experience really in the last couple of years before the pandemic, um, the profitability, the the health of banks in the US, um, Australia, you know, you just look around, look around the world, you can see these two, these two concepts of of growth and uh, safety. They're not mutually exclusive.
2: In the long run. I think they are. They they either are inconsistent in the short run or they may be or, or which amounts to the same thing from a practical political point of view. They may be perceived to be inconsistent in the short run. And I think Mm. Crises, economic crises, shift policymakers to think more about the short run.
1: Yeah, I'm wearing my, yeah, I can't help but seeing the world through a Basel committee lens, <laughs> thank you for that. And, and I think, um, you know, developing global standards, minimum standards, um, they're, they're developed to, uh, to be in effect through a cycle so we we do take um, the long view and I, and I think you know what we're seeing today on issues like green finance um, uh, other ESG issues um, I you know I, I don't know if regulation or, or global standards like Basel I, I'm not sure if that's the right Avenue to address a near-term socially desirable objectives um, mainly you know, basel mainly almost exclusively is um prudential standards and to go um outside of that i i i don't think it's uh it really is a, an effective efficient means for addressing these these other uh, these other issues in, in the near term
0: i mean yeah that that neatly brings us on to our next question because you know the eu Wants to put climate change and sustainability as, as really front and centre of their recovery programme, a, a green deal. Um, I, I mean, Paul, what, what do you think about how that might influence, you know, their version of the Basel rules, CRR, CRD? Um, you know, do you think what they what the, some things are discussing is the right way to go?
2: Yes, I think it would be very unfortunate because I, I and I fully agree with. <laughs> pill on this i think it would be very unfortunate if the prudential regime the prudential regime for the regulation of the banks were used for a purpose other than safety and soundness and financial stability
0: right yeah
2: um i you know i think that would make it very difficult to agree prudential standards uh, at a global level because the countries can have different you know uh, different social objectives that they're wishing to pursue Um, I, I, I also think it would be, uh, I think it would make banks less safe. There would be, or to be more accurate, there would be less clarity as to the safety of the the degree of safety that banks had. If, if prudential requirements were set on the basis of social good, that is not to say that there shouldn't be regulation of banks that aims at social good, but I don't think it should be through the mechanism of. Of, of capital requirements.
0: Okay, fine. Yeah, so I think you, you kind of agree with 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 Bill on that. Um, yes. Okay. Um, maybe uh, we, if we just move this along a bit, um, the future of bank supervision. Um, you know, you, you've you've got all these issues we just talked about. You know, ESG, diversity. We've now got regulatory technology, artificial intelligence. I mean. Could you give some views, Paul, as you know, because I know you talk to banks and regulators a lot as to where you think that's heading for.
2: So I think the most interesting one is is the way regulatory, sorry, is the way technology, I beg your pardon, will uh, change the economic role of the banks. Okay. Um, uh, Yeah, there's a separate issue about the way regulatory technology may uh, may affect the way regulators interact (laughs) with the banks. But the more profound issue is the way in which technology itself may change the role of banks within the real economy I am um, not sure we will have the same need for financial intermediaries in general uh, I'm not sure we will have that same need well um, because of fintechs and because of fintechs because okay. of yeah uh, I mean, in a certain sense I mean this is not new. I mean, the capital markets themselves, um, you know, for you know, for 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 many many decades, more profoundly in the US than in Europe, have been providing disintermediated ways of connecting, um, uh, uh, yeah, of connecting sort of one part of the real economy that has an excess of funds to invest with another part that that needs investment. Um, so, so, so I, I, I'm, I'm so I'm not so sure about the role of banks in that respect. I'm also not so sure about the role of banks, and indeed even central banks, in 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 another respect. That is to say, as suppliers of money, creators and suppliers of money. Um, I'm not sure the direction that will go in, but you know, if 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 we go down the path of modern monetary theory. Oh gosh! Um, yep. yeah <laughs> i think that yeah i think we have, we have a completely different banking system and it yep. and it may well be even the fiercest opponents are going down that path if one looks at the degree of of uh money creation financing that is going on of the real economy at the moment um yeah if one goes down the path of um of, of blockchain chain technology uh, and other forms of disintermediated money, uh, one also has a completely different relationship between the banking industry and money creation. Yeah. So those are at least two profound ways in which we could just just find in a in half a generation or a generations' time that the banks play a completely different role and a much less significant role in the in the economy than they do currently.
0: Okay but, but it's quite a quite a, quite a radical uh, vision there of, of the future i mean i mean bill coming to you um what what's your take on you know bank supervision of the future
1: yeah i mean this um, this has been one of the most for me one of the most interesting things to watch uh, unfold and evolve over the, uh, over the course of the last well really the last 10 years it was often a, a, a very welcome diversion from from the mundane negotiation and hashing out of Basel III standards, it was fun. It was fun to work on this <laughs> yeah. and, and to try to see where this was, uh, has taken us. I mean, I agree with Paul. It, it, we we are still seeing some a profound evolution in the role of banks and in the provision of finance in, in the uh, in the real economy. But uh, but I, I do you know I do recognize banks are special um, deposit no. insurance. Um, and and uh, the safekeeping of, of uh, deposits at banks, um, the role that banks play. Of course, as Paul rightly said, this is all this is all shifting. But for now, banks continue to be special. And um, you know, just just a, on the point of supervision, um, there has always been, uh, for as long as I've been involved in, in bank supervision regulation, it's 30 35 years. There's always been a concern, a, a supreme Sensitivity to uh, to burden, and um, you know. So on the one hand, we, we have great developments in fintech and reg regtech. Banks using fintech for compliance and regulatory reporting, and they they've made great strides in, in, in that regard. Suptech, similarly, how can uh, supervi- how could the supervisory process be made more efficient, more effective through the use of technology? So I think there's there's um, all organizations around the world, supervisory authorities, are paying close attention to that to see how they could uh, take a greater advantage of technology. But the one thing that sticks in my mind is one of the really, from a supervisory perspective, one of the really important lessons learned from the global financial crisis, and that was the need for close on-site examination and inspection, um, particularly for the larger and more complex firms. Um, there is really there's no substitute for having an on-site presence to review loan files, uh, yeah. for example, speak with loan officers, risk managers, senior management, uh, and so forth. So um, it, it, it was fascinating for me to see during the uh, you know the post GFC period, um, given this um, given this sensitivity to uh, to burden, but we started talking about. Supervisory intensity, sup- supervisory intrusiveness, um, as uh, as as you know, um, as a positive thing, and, um, and I think the lesson was learned by s- several authorities worldwide that um, you know, um, their the lack of that kind of um, intensity or even intrusiveness or this on-site presence, I think uh, a lot of organizations found out the, the real hard way that uh, that was a mistake. So yeah. I, I do. Think that uh, you know. Uh, to sum up, SupTech for sure is changing the way um, supervisors think about uh, overseeing a bank. But at, at the same time, there is this this need for um, you know for for close, careful, uh, intense engagement with with management uh, on the ground.
0: So ba- basically, that that the hands-on approach um, should 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 continue. Really, okay. Yeah. Okay, well, well, let's just just quickly sort um, of wrap this up now. I, um, now, banks have long complained about shadow banks. You know um, that they're regulated differently. So, a very a very quick one for you, Paul. Um, do you think there is an argument for the sake of financial stability to bring these so-called shadow banks under prudential frameworks?
2: Uh, yes, but as soon as you do so. Uh, a further set of institutions come into existence that are shadow shadow banks,
0: <laughs> right? OK. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, like, wh- whack a or
2: something. Uh, <laughs> a, 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 exactly so. <laughs> shadow banks are, by definition, the institutions that are just outside the boundary of what you have chosen to regulate as banks, right? When you move that boundary, you temporarily solve the problem. Okay. It's like putting weed killer down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it will, it solves the problem for, you know, um, a period of time, but then, uh, uh, you know, they adapt.
0: So what we kind of have to learn to live with them, I, I, I guess, or, or the prudential regulators do.
2: Yes, I mean, which isn't to say we shouldn't continue to uh, be play very close scrutiny to them. But it, it is there is no the point I'm making is not that one shouldn't try and address the issue, but that simply moving the boundary and assuming that the participants will carry on doing what they're doing in the same way. Once you've made them regulated, is not a correct way of viewing what will actually happen.
0: Right. Okay. Um, well, Bill, do you do you have any just sort of uh, as a final word, as it were? What, what is your take on?
1: Yeah. and um, I, I like the way Paul uh, Paul phrased it. With um, you know, there'll be an, another um, another round of shadow banks. Uh, I, I agree with that. Um, I, you know, whenever we talk about banks and in um, and, and the relationship with shadow banks or the you know, how shadow banks aren't regulated, um, it's often almost always um, in the context of banks are at a disadvantage. I, I uh, maybe you'll not be surprised, but I think it's it's actually uh, quite the opposite. I think regulated entities have quite an advantage over the non-regulated competition access to discount windows, other forms of emergency assistance, uh, liquidity, deposit yeah. insurance. So these, these official sector backstops, instill confidence um, in, in uh, you know, shareholders, st- other stakeholders, depositors. Um, and if you, you look at the r- relatively lo- very low cost of funding that banks enjoy versus um, some of the non-regulated firms, uh, I actually think it's uh, an advantage for uh, banks to um, have this uh, this regulatory backstop.
0: Yeah. Okay, guys. Well, um, I, I think that, that very neatly wraps it up. I, I'd, I'd really like to thank both of you for taking part. And if you'd like to listen to more regulatory podcasts, please visit www.globalriskregulator.com. And you can also subscribe via Acast, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And finally, I'd like to wish everyone listening to stay safe and well. Thank you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out
1: its tongue. Another cool fact